You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest story reads like a dramatic novel. Sandra Pankhurst is a transgender woman who was adopted at a young age by a family who would later abuse her. She was forced to live in a backyard shed where she was malnourished of food and love. She has found her solace in the most unusual professions. Sandra has worked as a trauma cleaner for more than 20 years. What does a trauma cleaner do? They clean up after crime scenes, traumas, meth labs, hoarding and squalor. Sandra, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you? My pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. Oh, it's my pleasure. When I, I, when I heard about you, I was so fascinated, but I've already told you that. <laughs> so, and it's funny because so many of my friends, since I've said that I was going to interview, are like, oh, my God, I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, she gets about this old girl. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, Sandra, I know you had a difficult childhood. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, I was adopted into this family and um, told that my sister was born, so she's the eldest. She was born and then there was myself uh, that they adopted and then five years later they had another son and they thought they were told that they couldn't have any more children. Right. And now the two years later they had another son. So then when I was aged about seven, they said, I was told that, told that they couldn't have any more children and so they had adopted me. But at the age of seven, they then realised that they could have their own children. They said to me, you're really not wanted. Um, we don't want you to be really part of the family. Wow. And as a child, you don't really think that much of it. All you want to do is to be loved by someone. Yeah. So um, anyhow, once a month or so, we'd have family get-togethers and all that. That was when I was in a lab with all the family and stuff like that. And I used to have fond memories of hanging on to my mother's leg in the kitchen. So I would have probably been a bit of a pest, you know, wanting to kick it off. Mm. Um, but that's how I sort of got my love, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't until the age of 13 that I got kicked out of the house to live in a bungalow at the back of the, the, the house. And... The bungalow had no access to water or anything. There was a gully trap outside. There was an outside toilet. It was just a room. And um, probably nine foot by eight foot, something like that. Mm. It was a rectangular room. And um, because of the situation of our house, there was a driveway down the side of it, a laneway, and he used to back into the property. And if he backed in, and it was crooked, you knew he was drunk and I'd get a beating that night. Ugh. So that was what I remember of my childhood. Wow. So when you left, did you, is that the last time you saw them? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I was kicked out at 17 because I wouldn't get a haircut and, of course, they wanted to give me a crew cut and I, I just had a gut so I weren't going to do it anymore. Yeah. So it was a wet, rainy Monday night, I remember, and my mother was at cake decorating classes and he'd had a gut call and said, okay, get out, get a haircut or get out. So um, I decided I weren't getting a haircut, so I got out. I was very fortunate that the McMahon family, Mary McMahon was my best friend. And um, she, I rang her and said, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? She said, come around, mum and dad will take you in. So I went and stayed with them for six months 
and then they were going off overseas on a long holiday that they'd wanted. So I went then to go and live with their son and his wife and family. Wow. So lucky that you had somebody there to support you afterwards. Oh, thank God. Yeah, yeah. I could have been a street kid otherwise. Oh, I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Now, apart from all the other amazing things you did with your life, you then became the very first funeral, a female funeral director in Australia. How did that come about? Oh, well, it was a matter of circumstance. I'd sort of, I'd worked at, um, I was a laboratory technician for John Darling's flour mills first off. Um, and then I'd left there because I didn't feel like going through the change was a matter of um, breast showing through, the makeup was starting to come on, yeah. it was taking over my body. And I decided that I couldn't hold the respect for that position because I was running the laboratory at John Darling's flour mills. And Bert Bowden, who was just a magnificent man from Sydney who I had to answer to, he said to me, we don't want you to go, we don't want you to go, you know. And I said, well, I I can't stay in that position um, and not um, have respect for it. Yeah. So anyhow, um, I don't know what I was going to do, but anyhow I decided I'd leave from there. Now, your initial part to that question was... The, uh, so you were the first funeral, female funeral director. Oh, yeah. So anyhow, I ended up getting a job at John Dahl at um, WD Rose and some funeral directors. And, um, but how that come about is that I was looking for a job at the time because I'd been the laboratory technician and had several other jobs. And um, I just really wanted to be a funeral director because I saw funerals as being like conducting a play Mm. and you'd get people up to a certain emotion and they could get on with their life much easier than if they didn't face the emotion they were up and down in their life pattern until they could get on with it so I used to make them quite emotional and get everyone involved so everyone had a good come back down to normality But I struggled to get that job. I hassled them for six months for that job. I saw the job in a paper and I used to ring and ring and ring and ring and in the end they ended up giving me the job. But I loved it. I was passionate about it. And um, press got out that, you know, there was a female funeral director and it just happened to be that I was the first one ever. And um, little did they know. So um, anyhow, um, that was with great pride that I took that on and had photographs taken in the local paper and all this sort of stuff. And um, But I loved that job. I absolutely loved it. It's funny, you know. I actually... Husband. I heard, yes. I actually heard in the interview and you said something really hilarious (laughs) about his wife. (laughs) Well, people used to say to me, how did I meet George? And I'd go... There it is, wife. <laughs> so um, it wasn't as clear cut as that. It was a bit of a joke that we had between us. Yeah. But it was really, I met him laying his wife to rest and he sort of could, really couldn't come to terms with it, but keep wanting to see me afterwards. And the manager would always say, oh, I'd say to him, do I need to go over and see this man? He's really not coping very well. And um, he said, yeah, you better go over. You better go over. So I'd go over there and... Um, I'd come back and I'd go, oh, he's a really nice man, that Mr. Pankhurst. 
And they go, oh, you fancy, boss. I don't be ridiculous, you know. <laughs> and um, two years later, we're married. Isn't that <laughs> so amazing? So funny life turns out. Yeah, it really is. It's funny, you know, I actually only um, recently interviewed a funeral director and he was so passionate about his job and he absolutely loved it. And he said very similar things to what you said as trying to get the family through to that next point. I mean, right. it's, it's so important to have that, that grieving and that mourning process. And a funeral is a huge part of that because it, it is sort of like the farewell. It is. It is. Yeah. And it's, if it's not done properly, it can affect you for the rest of your life. I agree. And I feel that's a very big responsibility to take on. And we need to honour that by doing it properly and respecting the family and giving them exactly what they want. Mm, mm, you know, it's definitely. a very precious position to be in. Yeah. So how did the trauma cleaning come about? Well, we, after I'd married my husband, George, he wanted me just to travel with him because he was the managing director of Mackay Rubber in Melbourne. And so we used to travel a lot and all that sort of stuff and he wanted me to free to be travel with him. So, <coughs> excuse me. So anyhow, um, uh, we ended up, after a while, I got a little bit bored and I said, you know, I really need something to do. There's only so much shopping you can do, only so much lunch you can do. I'm, I'm bored. I need an interest, you know. Mm. So anyhow, we, I was thinking more like a boutique or something like that, but he thought, Oh no, we'll get a hardware store and work together. <laughs> oh my God, what a, what a strange thing. Anyhow, it's funny how you, everything sort of lines up to where you're meant to be in life. Yeah, we all really think does. we've got a plan of where we're going to go and how we're going to do everything, but it never works out like that. Destiny has another way of pointing you in a direction. So I learned a lot of skills out of the hardware store, how to fix things, how to repair things, mm -hmm. how to all this sort of knowledge. And um, we offered a very personalised service to people, but it was a, we'd had it for seven years and it was doing really, really well. But it was a mum's and dad's hardware store. It was not a builder's hardware store where sure. we sold timber and stuff like that. So Bunnings come along. Hey, presto, uh. I'm on 30, 13 committees, running for local government, seven-day-a-week business. I've always been a psychopath. <laughs> and um, anyhow, um, with that we got into Struggle Street because our rent back in those days, and this is nearly 28, 30 years ago, um, we, our rent was a quarter of a million dollars a year, let alone our outgoings and having money to live on, you know. So, um, and even though I was very well known with all the committees and President of the Chamber of Commerce and Lady Mayoress's Committee and local government, everything, it still didn't help us when Bunnings were offering things so cheap yeah. that we couldn't survive. So anyhow, we decided to go into liquidation, which I probably wouldn't have done in hindsight because like, the auctioneer was just to auction all the goods off was like 40000 just for the day. You know, we yeah. could have had other ways of selling things off and making yeah. a better adjustment. But you live and learn. And... Um, of course, they all get their money first and we're left with nothing. So we end up with no houses, no cars, no nothing. So I had to reinvent myself. So I knew of this because I'd been a funeral director and I could see the police, fire brigade, ambulance. They weren't interested in cleaning up. It wasn't their gig. 
No. So um, I could see a need for it, but I never dreamed in a million years that I would be doing it because I was too up myself. You know, I thought <laughs> that I don't need to do this sort of work. So um, I started a domestic cleaning business called We're Absolutely Fabulous because everyone around us knew that I was good with my hands and very artistic and all that sort of stuff. So they'd get me in to either clean their houses or tidy up their gardens. And what I kept hearing over and over, this looks absolutely fabulous. This looks absolutely <laughs> fabulous. So I then registered a business called it We're Absolutely Fabulous and our catch cry was if you need a cleaner or a gardener, we're absolutely fabulous. I love it. So come to us. So within three months I had 20 staff. But in those days we didn't have to pay staff between jobs. So out of an eight-hour day, you could probably earn a maximum six hours because you had to travel between jobs and pack up and all that sort of thing. And every day it would be, oh, look, I'm not coming into work today, you know, Johnny's sick and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, my God, I'm working my ass off around the clock and um, I'm exhausted and we've got end-of-lease cleans, spring cleans, as well as our normal cleans to do. And I thought, this is nickels and dimes money, yeah. absolutely nickels and dimes. So I thought about it and a girlfriend and I decided because we were in the funeral industry prior, we could get a contact and get a job straight away. So we did. What a Pandora's box we opened because <laughs> with me having a chemical background, I could research the needs for chemicals and things like that and everything we could do. Um, but it was the doing the job and I had a nickname Mrs Sparkle because everything I, I do my house was always sparkling yeah <clears throat> anyhow to go into these places was like such a culture shock that it was like what the yeah <laughs> happened here you know yeah. but these people I needed to be a wildlife officer because the rats were running up and down oh. your legs and running across rooms <coughs> excuse me there was Alcohol bottles up to knee high right through the place. There was um, cupboards full of booze bottles and cans and everything. It was just rancid, absolutely rancid. So our first job took 72 hours straight. And we were almost gaga by the end of the experience. Didn't charge enough money or anything like that. But it come down to the very last layer, the fifth layer of flooring we had to take off in the kitchen kitchen because it was so contaminated and um anyhow um we went to get the fifth layer of flooring off and we had to ring the client and said look we've worked our butts off here you know we need another 500 dollars to get the last layer of flooring off and he agreed to that and so we got that off but it wasn't only glued to the ground it was also riveted to the ground so as we're cutting and splicing and pouring boiling water over to break the glue down we're using spades to lift up and it ricochet in your hands. Oh. Well, by the end of it, our hands were like watermelons and they were aching like crazy. And I thought, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. So anyhow, you get over it in a few days' time and you think, okay, we've got to think of smarter ways of doing things. We've got to think of better ways of doing things. And, of course, these days I'm very fortunate I don't have to work at all. Mm. My staff look after it. The business is doing very well. Uh, we're probably the biggest in Victoria in the trauma and crime scene in business. And um, I'm sort of quite proud of that, you know. Yeah. So uh, we're very, very busy. Um, and I've elevated one of the girls there that 
was dotting the I's and crossing the T's to give her my position, but I can see what's going on with cameras in the factory and everything like that, yeah. and I just pop in occasionally to make sure everything's running well. If you like your beauty products to stand out, look a little different and smell amazing, then I'm pretty sure you should check out Sugar Monster. Brand new and completely Adelaide-based, Sugar Monster scrubs are natural body products with a quirky style to them. You'll have to see to know why. All completely handmade, vegan and cruelty-free with skin-loving ingredients that your body will love. Plus, they smell good enough to eat. But don't actually do that. Check out the range at sugarmonster.com.au and support local business. So um, So do you guys still work during this period, the isolation? Oh, God, yeah, because we're an essential service. Right. So we do COVID claims, we do um, deceased estates, we do mental health, drug and alcohol problems, um, ABIs, uh, uh, NDIS call us in to do a lot of the properties with them, different community groups call us in because we've got, fortunately, we've got a very good name and that's the one thing that I project. If you don't have a good name... Don't spend money on advertising because it's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah, You've exactly. got to have a good product to sell it and it sells itself. That's it. Yeah. Funny enough, when I was just, because um, I was living in Sydney before Adelaide and just before I left, I was living in a unit where the unit right next door was leased by um, the housing department and they'd put in this older woman. Now, the unit was actually a two-storey unit. So, you know, you had your bedroom and bathroom upstairs and downstairs was your living area, your kitchen. And, I mean, I always knew that there was a really bad funky smell coming from her unit. And my unit started getting an absolute infestation of cockroaches. And, I mean, I had a bomb, I think, eight times. You know, it was infested. Um. She went, she sort of, I, I mean, I used to see her quite a bit and I'd carry her groceries up to a door for her and stuff like that because she was quite, you could tell that she wasn't, you know, couldn't walk the best and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then what happened was a couple of days we hadn't seen her and I sort of asked, started asking around, had anyone seen her? And I then called the police and they came over and to like broke into the house. Yeah, well, they check. Yeah, mm. so they found out that she was actually in hospital. Um but when they came into my unit, they were like, uh, do you know much about her or anything? I went, no, nothing. And they went, oh, I think she was like Yugoslavian or something. And they said, oh, look, do you mind if we come into your unit and have a look at the layout because it's exactly the same as hers because we actually can't get upstairs because from the stairwell upstairs is just cobwebs or spiders. And so what had happened was because she was so crippled, she couldn't get up the stairs to the bathroom. So she used to have to go to the toilet in plastic bags that were spotted around downstairs. And that's where the smell was coming from, the cockroaches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they ended up, you know, moving her out and cleaning up the unit and stuff like that. But, oh, it was revolting. (laughs) So I... I, I, they are mind-blowing, oh, absolutely mind-blowing. But it's because they don't know how to cope with it, and this is where the mental yeah. health comes into it with the hoarding and everything like that, is that you can't sort of really blame them, but they get scared no. that they're going to lose their housing yeah. or they're going to be out on the street or whatever. Like we had an incident where we did this woman that was, she had a sewage overflow many years ago and she didn't, know how to deal with it and she didn't have the cognitive facts about her to get things sorted 
So anyhow, we, we got the job of going in there to clean it. And she'd also had a few floods and stuff like that. So the place was pretty rotten and there was rubbish all over the floors up to like a metre high or whatever. And it was all wet and damp and everything like that. But it wasn't until we started moving furniture out and opening up wardrobes that it was riddled with black mould. And anyhow, this woman had put up a fight like Billio to, she didn't want us to do the clean or anything like that. She didn't want anyone to come in and disturb her. She was embarrassed, basically. So anyhow, once we saw all the black mould when we moved the couch out and the wardrobes and things like that, we had to put a, a stop on the job because it was a health issue. Yeah. And um, so anyhow, she was furious, this woman. Six months later, they put her, they actually transferred her to aged care. Aged care, she sort of come alive. She got well. She thought she was dying. And she was losing out on the opportunity to see her children, her grandchildren, because her children wouldn't come over to the nice. house because of the condition it was in. And she was so appreciative in the end that yeah. we stood by our guns and did what we did and then ceased the house that no one was allowed to live in it again. And um, they had to virtually rebuild it from the inside out. And um, But she was so grateful that she had this new life. She was getting healthier. She could breathe. And oh, she really man. looked after her aged care place. That's amazing. So, you know... Some of the ones that complain the most are often the ones that can be most grateful in the end, in hindsight. Yeah. Well, funny enough, I mean, I was so glad that they, they you know, w- this finally happened with this woman because, I mean, I can't believe that they put a, a lady like her who was, who was obviously an invalid into a place where she into couldn't even... Into a two-storey place. Yeah, into a two-storey place. It's absolutely ridiculous. So thankfully we ended up finding the help she needed also, which is just... So important these days, especially with tapping with the elderly and aged care and all that sort of stuff. I mean, apart from the COVID stuff that's happening, but but they need as much guidance and assistance as they can get because half the time... So I, I, I don't blame the DHHS worker either no. because their workload is so intensive oh, yeah. that they don't often have time to go around and see all these people with all the other problems. And they face a myriad of problems. Oh, yeah. Um, with today's society yeah and um, a lot of it's just a phone call are you okay yeah 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 I'm fine I'm fine okay do you need me to pop in no 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 because Mm. they're living in a mess and they don't want anyone to see it because they feel it's threatening their home so um, but you know we've got to get better at this and we've got to start getting smarter at working it out that's it exactly what are some of the worst parts of the job that the public wouldn't realize um, I think it's, um, look, a death is um, easy to clean up in, in retrospect. They're quicker and shorter jobs or whatever. Um, you might have to, you know, cleaning up blood or maggots and things like that. Um, the hoarding is probably the hardest job of all because you've got to be mentally alert and a couple of steps ahead of them. You can't... <clears throat> tell people what to do because I would take offence if someone told me how to live. Yeah. So you've got to put yourself in their shoes and say, what's the nicest way I can do this? So we give them, say, three suggestions and which one would you like, you know? Oh, I think, um, why don't we go with this? Okay, what a great suggestion. And you get them on board and get them involved and, 
and work with the client rather than telling them. But the mm. hardest work is the actual hoarding of jobs because it's mentally draining, not only physically draining, and quite often the smell is quite yeah. hideous as well. So they'd be the hardest jobs. Death is quite easy, but also it could be quite confronting. You know, we had a guy that um, many years ago that we got called to this house and was way up on a hill in suburbia. And um, anyhow, they didn't know that he, he'd gone missing and they didn't know where he was or anything. But they soon found out where he was missing months later because he'd hung himself up in the roof. Obviously didn't hear what he wanted to hear and he was shitting up there, eating up there, all this sort of stuff. Well, he hung himself up there and when he hung himself, it was only when he was body was rotting away that the juices were flowing down the walls and that's wow. how they found out where he was. So that was a pretty heavy-duty job yeah. and we virtually had to rebuild the ceiling in the property. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, so they, they can be heavy duty. Yeah. But I'm a bit pissed with them because they never paid. <laughs> and that was in the early days. <laughs> so if you're out there, <laughs> pay Yeah, <out>. look out, <laughs> honey. <laughs> so what are some of the tools that you use for, for the jobs? Like for You'd be surprised. We can stains. use hammers, spades, crowbars not just your domestic cleaning we have chemicals that we use that are pretty heavy duty chemicals yeah um and but like it's not just a a feather duster and a wipe do you know what i mean it's <laughs> yeah. intensive bit, bit of ajax <laughs> you bet it's like a bomb really you've got to get a bomb because some of the houses have like their the roofs have caved in on some of the houses in parts of the house yeah. the rain has come through so with all the rubbish that's on there, it's like been so compressed with all the years of walking over it that like in some of the houses, you see the piles of rubbish in them, but you see fingerprints on the ceiling where their dirty hands have been to steady them walking over the rubbish Wow! to get in the houses. It's absolutely mind-blowing what you see and have people put what they put themselves through because they have no self-worth. Yeah. It actually reminds me of that, um, there's that family that live in Sydney. Uh, they're just sort of between, well, they're just near Bondi Junction. And it, basically, it's, their house is on a major road, so it's a big focus in that area. And it's a mother and her two daughters from memory, um, and they're, they're all hoarders, the whole lot of them. And so they... Yeah, and so what? I think mm-hmm. they've cleaned that house out three times, and they managed. Just oh, they can go be repetitive. Back. The re- reason they're repetitive is because they're not getting any psychological help with it, yeah. and also they're going in and doing a mass clean out without their permission and without their say so. Well, that stuff gives them a great strength, so yeah. they automatically refill the place up again to give them comfort so that job has not been handled properly we need to take the people's consideration into thought yeah like we we might go through and do a job and we go okay how many pairs of jeans do you really need you don't need 50 pair of jeans you know why don't we cut it down to 30 Mm. so i'll agree to that and we'll get down to 30 and then we'll keep going through all this stuff and then we finally get down, well, actually, 
there's only seven days a week. How many of these do you really need? And they'll often cull down a bit further. So you can do it in stage layers yeah. to sort of get them on board to make them feel comfortable to get the job done. My yeah. husband calls me a hoarder. And it's like, oh, just, you don't even know. <laughs> like, oh, I'm a hoarder with shoes, I can tell you. I've got boxes <laughs> of the bloody things. Well, you know what's really bizarre is I actually... It's it, the weirdest thing is is that one of the one of the biggest piles of stuff that I actually have is paperwork, and he's like to me, "Why do you always keep your paperwork?" And I said, "Well, because it's law." I said, "I didn't realize I actually went through a workers' comp claim many years ago, and you actually have to keep that paperwork. I think it was for, for seven years. No, it's longer, twenty something years. I almost oh. passed out when I read it because I actually." I know, I looked it up again, yeah, I looked it up again just recently because I always was in the thinking it was the seven year because that's your banking's normally seven years, et cetera, et cetera. Workers' comp, it's different. It's actually a lot longer. And I was like, oh, I'll, be, I'll be like 70 or something by the time I can throw this we'll stuff out. We'll have to build on two rooms just for the bloody paperwork. <laughs> I know, tell me about it. And that <laughs> is... Two rooms. <laughs> I can almost build a room out of the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> Now, listen, can anything be cleaned or is there some jobs that just can't be fixed? Look, some things can't be because body juices, acids and things like that destroy them. Yeah. I've seen a mattress virtually disintegrated through body acids from a body being left in a property. So, you know, and it can stain the timber so bad that you can't get it out of the timber so you have to cut flooring out to have new flooring put in. Mm. You know, like, and sometimes the uh, uh, plaster on the wall can be so damaged that you you can't leave it there. Um, our aim is to, like, if someone was killed on a or died on a bit of carpet in a room, I wouldn't cut just that square out yeah. because that was like X marks a spot forever for the family. I would remove the whole room of carpet and then clean up the mess, do you know what I mean? So that they don't know exactly where it happened. They can't filter stories into their mind that they don't, they don't really understand. Mm. <coughs> so we, you know within I mean? those circumstances, I mean, I mean, with a crime, it would be different, I'm assuming, to just a death because a lot of the time you would have a coroner that would come in and collect the body, is that right? The bodies are never there when we get there. Yeah. Police, forensics, coroner, all have been there before we're even allowed on the property. So we we have to go and clean up the mess after all that. So and bring the body back to the, the place back to its former glory as close as possible. And I was watching an interview with you where you described something that I was just like, I didn't even think of that where you described how you can even find after the fact body parts on walls and stuff. Yeah. You'd found a part of a a, 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 a lip or something. A lip, an eyelash. Yeah. Eyelash. Um, all this or that the roof of the mouth was in another part of the room. Uh, this is quite a large room, but he tried to shoot his head off. Three times he tried to and he's still alive. So oh. where's your car? I think you've got a lot of karma coming your way, baby. Yeah. So um, he sort of shot himself in the head three times um, and look, an eyelid, eye, a whole strip of eyelashes was on one side of the room. 
um, wow. brain matter was on another side of the room, um, top of the roof of the mouth was another side of the room, Crazy. and just pieces of flesh and brain all over the place. Uh. It's sort of, when you first see it, it's quite confronting, but when you do it regular, it's like water off a duck's back. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You play more like Sherlock Holmes to keep your mind occupied. That's you know, it. who's up who and who's not paying the rent sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, how often are such things as crime scenes and trauma done? Would we be surprised at how often? Um, well, depends whether they fit the criteria for the Department of Justice is another right. thing because um, not all cases get reported to the Department of Justice because they don't fit the criteria. So it's up to the family to get their insurance company or something like that to cover it for them or they have to do it themselves if they have no money. Right. Um, so probably I would say out of our business, and we work for the Department of Justice and Big Pole, uh, we would probably find 5% of our business would be crime. Right. Even in this day and age. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Very yeah. interesting. And the rest of it will be hoarding, squalor, mental health, drug and alcohol abuse. And who pays for that? when? Um, NDIS pays for a lot of it. Right. Um, different community groups pay for it, um, church organisations, um, possibly government jobs. Um, it, it's a very mixed bag of people. Solicitors so it, looking after estates and things right. like that. So in a situation where maybe I was renting a house to somebody, would it be up to me to clean the house if someone...? Um, it should be up to... If you're responsible for it, you would have to clean it up. Right. But if it was an act of violence against you, it could be victims of crime okay. or it could be, it'll be put back on the owner of the property right. to get it up scratch. God, those poor people that own a property, they might not have had anything to do with it. Yeah, oh. I know. But they have to have it insured as, to, as a viable business oh, anyhow yeah, to true. leave the property out. Yeah. So, <coughs> so they, they would have to cross their eyes and dot their T's to make sure, sure that insurance covered them. Got you, got you. Now, I also know that you've written a book called The Trauma Cleaner, which also yes. won the award for the non-fiction category for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. Can you tell me more about it? Well, it's been fantastic. It's the sixth most read book in Australia. It's um, absolutely wild. It's changed my life because I'm transgender. I um, always worked my guts off because if you had a problem with me, it wasn't because of my workability. That was always 150%. And if you had a problem with me because of my gender, you had a problem. That's it. But in having the book done, it's been the most um, cathartic experience and the most wonderful experience because I expected that um, people would have a, a for and against do you know what I mean? And there'd yeah. be a lot of down stuff. But I've only ever received positive um, confirmation of the book. It's quite amazing because I'll just grab a copy of the book and I'll read the back bit yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah, do it. When they first put, we, we would um, present that to the public. I said, no, 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 no. I said, that sounds disgusting. And, they said, <laughs> and then I thought about it and I thought, oh, it is so like hotcakes. Hang on a sec. <laughs> I love it. So this is the book here. I love it. And it's It's actually, the cover is designed as the 
woman in flight sculpture oh, in yeah. France. Yeah. And it really represents my story. So when it said here, before she was a trauma cleaner, Sandra Pankhurst was many things, a husband, a father, a drag queen, a sex reassignment patient, sex worker, businesswoman, and trophy wife. I thought, <laughs> well, What a <laughs> claim to fame. That was a bit of a shock to the system. <laughs> that's really good, though. Really good. It is. It is. And it's funny enough, I've seen... I've well, there's a possibility of a, a serial being done in America. Yeah. Um, so we're just sort of waiting on that. But, you know, these all these things take time. Yeah, you know? exactly. So and I'm working on, at the moment, on doing another book. Even though I didn't write that one, I had that written by Sarah Krasnstein. Yeah. And um, I'm now presenting my own book this second time round. It'll be something like out of my own mouth or something like that. But it'll go into more depth of my childhood, the experiences I've had, the charities and everything I'm involved with and the different things that I do these days, the lung surgery, which nearly took me out, the... um, also, the embezzlement out of the business, I nearly lost everything two years ago. Wow. And having the lung surgery, I got ripped off blind and then um, starting again. So yeah. it's as another success story on top of all the other shit that's gone down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Funny enough, um, I was looking at the book the other day online and you can actually get it hard copy you can get it on your Kindle. So yeah. definitely everybody that's listening, check it out because I'm, de- I'm definitely getting my copy. I am gagging to read it. I'll <laughs> call it. the next one too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now, and I'm also going to be doing a, a, a Australian true crime tour later this year. Oh, wow. It was meant to be in May, but with COVID it's been put back. Yeah. That's with Michelle Laurie. Yeah. Emily Webb, Ron Idles, who was head of homicide here for many years, and myself. Oh, so we'll amazing. be touring nationally and into New Zealand as well. Oh, I'll have to so come and see you when you're in Adelaide. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, because I love Michelle. I, I, I listen to that podcast a lot. Oh, yeah, and she's got her Nitty Gritty podcast as well. Yeah, yeah. No, so, I really, like, really love her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I actually was even thinking about trying to get her onto the show one day, just so I can talk crime with her. <laughs> oh, excellent! Yeah, well, you should. I, yeah, I just love her. I think she's fantastic. Now, my yeah. last question: What yes. is the one thing you are proud of? I think the biggest achievement I ever had in ninety two, ninety three year, I was asked by Western Port Drug and Alcohol to um, raise some funds to get some troubled kids on the Almodo Pal. And currently I'm on the Almodo Pal um, helping out with there too because we're trying to rebuild the ship and get kids back on it because it was let go by the state governments. Why the governments don't support these things, I don't know. But anyhow, it went up to New South Wales. It almost sunk and got rotted out and everything. So we brought it back to Victoria at... um, South Bank, and we're restoring the boat there. So we need funds to sort of get that restored. Sure. And what happened is that I was asked to raise $10,000 in 10 days to get these kids on the Almodo Pal. And subsequently I did, fortunately. And um, I got a wine supplier to supply the wine. I got a cheese maker to supply the cheese. 
as president of the Chamber of Commerce, I've got all the businesses to put in gifts and things like that. Mm. So we raised the money. So these six kids went on the Almado Pal. One of the kids won a literary award on her writing experience of the whole Almado mm. Pal experience. And I have that here somewhere. And, <coughs> excuse me. And she, um, she, uh, the whole experience was I went down to Vic Doc than the day to see them out, see them off. And what had happened is that I thought, oh, thank you, God, I'm not going on the ship with them because they were about to tear each other's head off. You know, none of them knew each other. They were just wild childs. Yeah. And I thought, shit. Anyhow, on the last day, the agreement was that I go out to the ship and see them coming back. Well, what a transformation in those 10 days to see those kids come alive with love and heartfelt feelings for each other. And the aim of the Almatopal is that kids treat, teach kids, not the adults teach yeah. kids. And it's such a valuable thing because they all wanted to be um, volunteers to sort of help with the next cruise or look That's after so the ship amazing. and all this sort of stuff. And it just transformed their lives. They were crying. They were hugging. They didn't want to leave each other because they found a new way of living and not this violence and aggressive way they were living. And that change took 10 days. So I think it's just a marvellous project. I did a fundraiser with um, Peter Hitchner last year, um, but we couldn't do haven't done anything this year because of the COVID, mm. but um, they're looking for donations now for the Almodo Pal so that we can get the planks back on and we need a certain product to be able to have them to glue to make it waterproof. Sure. So if anyone's out there and they can help donate to the Almodo Pal, absolutely fantastic. I love it. So, and I'm also the ambassador for Dress for Success. So we, we have a new program Dress for Success was mainly just for women in the beginning. Mm. Now we've got room to go for men and we've also got be who you are for gay or transgender or whoever people. So we cover the whole community now in helping them get their confidence to go back to work or just feeling better about themselves and give them outfits to wear and everything like that. That's brilliant. So it's a really good project. So I'm, I'm actually involved, involved in with that. one here in Adelaide where this lady um, came up with the idea and the concept to help um, young women that are, you know, in vulnerable situations yeah. be able to get dressed for their formal. And because I right. work as a makeup artist, I said, well, you know, I'm happy to do their makeup and get them ready for the night and all that. But, of course, because of COVID, everything's changed so we're everything's on hold until you know the wheels start turning again unfortunately but sandra before we go can you just um tell everybody where they can find out more about you because i know you have your own website um i do have a website i'm on facebook um sandra pankos the trauma cleaner yeah i'm on instagram um i'm on linkedin um and you're quite welcome to ring me on on um, 0411 but follow my antics on Facebook and you'll get to see where I am, where I'm going. I can let people know of up-and-coming tours that I'm doing. I do public speaking these days, which I absolutely adore doing because, like, there's a lot of the feedback I get. It's very raw, raw, very inspirational, but don't take your kids. 
but it's a rare look at what my life is like really on the inside in the early years of prostitution and all this sort of stuff and the rape and everything like that. It's been a wild ride of a life, I can tell you. That adversity is the biggest message I can give you. If I can do it, anyone can do it. You're as powerful as your mind. You've just got to be focused and believe in your dream and go for it. That's it, exactly. I think it's really important that you do share your story because it's definitely worth hearing. It's not just about one issue. You've done so many things in your life that I think anyone can grab something from it. Too true. Yeah. Now, Sandra, I'm just going to reiterate your website, if I may, myself. Yep which is www.sandrapankhurst, which is P-A-N-K-U-R... Hang on, did I spell that? H-U-R-S-T. H-U-R-S-T. Pankhurst. <laughs> Sorry about that. My brain's not right. working today. Um, and it's .com.au. That's correct. And Pankhurst is my married name, which my husband was the great, great nephew of Emmeline Pankhurst, the suffragette. Oh, my God. How amazing. And I thought, how appropriate when I had the the tenacity to go and run for local government. I thought, that must be in the water we drink. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for the chat. I really appreciate it. It's been my utmost pleasure and I do hope the audience do come and look me up or whatever or want to have a chat on Facebook. I always answer everything. I love it. I'm slow with technology, but I always answer people. So I welcome you all. And I can't wait for the tour next year. Excellent. Well, hopefully it'll be later this year. I think they're planning on October. It'll be all states, Wollongong and New Zealand. Fantastic. How exciting. Yeah. Look forward to it. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you. for having me on the show and thank you, listeners. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.